ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to Get the Let Out with Dr. Chuck Stead. Last week, we started a conversation about Fordism, and this is the heart of the matter, and sometimes I guess you could call it the dark heart of the matter uh, when it comes to what happened after Ford decided to dispose of some of its chemicals and paints where it should not have. And so... This is going to be a little bit more challenging, I think. Uh, wouldn't you agree, Chuck? Oh, yeah. Actually, what we're doing with Fordism is we're looking at kind of the psychology and philosophy behind what Henry Ford developed in the early part of the 20th century. And there is enough of a psychology there that it plays into fear-mongering. Mm-hmm. And it's a side of uh, Henry Ford that they don't like to brag about these days. With that, let us begin. This is segment number nine of Get the Let Out with Dr. Chuck Stead. Thank you, Joe. So we're talking about Fordism, and we'll call this one Fordism Part 2. And last week, we talked a little bit about how Henry Ford had a weekly newspaper that he developed. It was called the Dearborn Independent. It had a high-flown motto, Chronicler of the Neglected Truth. Yeah, that was Henry Ford. And what he had done with this newspaper is he had found something called the Prodigals of the Learned Elders of Zion. This is a document purporting to be the minutes of a secret Jewish conclave led by a grand rabbi in the first Zionist Congress in Switzerland in 1897. Pure propaganda. This material was extremely anti-Semitic, and Henry Ford came upon it. It was first published around 1906. And... The purpose of the meeting, according to this material, of this consortium of Jewish leaders was to construct a blueprint for world domination. And this was a warning, Henry Ford believed, a warning of the future struggle to the death between the Aryans and the Jews. So yes, this is the darker side of Fordism. This is something he believed in and he promoted. And I got to thinking when I was doing my research, how does a person like Henry Ford, an American icon of the self-made industrial genius, how could he support such a thing? And I believe the answer is at the root of Ford's primary education, which is also the base for an American standard that emerged out of the 19th century, well into the 20th century, the McGuffey's Eclectic Readers. Considered the first curriculum for public schools in the United States, the McGuffey Readers were an anthology edited by William Holmes McGuffey that eventually produced more than 122 million copies from the printing of the first two volumes of the primers in 1836 to the publication of the sixth electric reader in 1921. McGuffey, who was one of the founders of the common school system in Ohio, was an advocate of Protestant Christianity as the only true religion in America. His religiosity was closer to Puritanism than Unitarianism. In his religion, God was omnipresent, always looking down hard upon us. And hard work vis-a-vis the Protestant work ethic with a drive towards success was heralded while failure was shunned. Early on, Exposed to the readers, Henry Ford, as a small boy, proudly boasted of his familiarity with the ideal of McGuffey Land, a vision where pure and pastoral lads worked with their own two hands and benefited directly from that labor. Throughout his life, Ford regularly quoted passages from the readers. He reprinted the six original volumes, distributed complete sets of them to schools all across the country, 
and even went so far as to have McGuffey's original whitewashed log home, the birthplace of McGuffey, disassembled from the Pennsylvania Hill Country and moved to his Dearborn Americana Museum in Michigan. Hmm. It is in the edition of McGuffey's new fifth eclectic reader that the young Henry Ford first learned of Shylock, or the Pound of Flesh, excerpted from William Shakespeare's The Merchant of Venice. Shylock, the Jewish moneylender, well, he demands literally a pound of flesh from his Christian debtor, Antonio, but is defeated by the condition of not shedding a single drop of Christian blood while cutting from Antonio the pound of flesh. And then the student is encouraged to answer the question as to why the moneylender, Shylock, demanded the pound of flesh rather than the debt payment. And as Neil Baldwin, a scholar who has done extensive research on the readers, has noted, the narrative asserted that the unfortunate Jews never accepted that the Bible is a Christian book to make us wise unto salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. As early as 1914, the B'nai B'rith Anti-Defamation League undertook a campaign to eliminate the required study of the Merchant of Venice as it excerpted in the McGuffey Standard Reader. The ADL sent a circular to school superintendents across the country noting that Shylock has become an unhappy symbol of Jewish vindictiveness, malice, and hatred. Now, the first time I heard the name Shylock in use was as an action word, as in, uh, don't get Shylocked, or, hey, that guy was Shylocked. This, along with the phrase, a pound of flesh, in reference to an onerous debt, were fixed slang among the elders in our village. Any insurance claim that was questionable was referred to as Jewish lightning. And any oversight, any kind of trouble with banking was associated with Jewish financing. Now, the ancient origin of the Jewish money lender might well have had its roots in a Christian taboo of charging interest as being sinful. The preponderance of the stereotypical Shakespearean moneylender came well into the 20th century and does appear to be promoted by the McGuffey readers. They remained a standard in local Ramapo schools through the early 20th century. Both my Uncle Mal and my father Walt remembered copying passages out of the McGuffeys as punishment for their tardiness. Along with the McGuffey readers, young Henry Ford and his siblings were raised on a daily dosage of the American Tract Society's The Illustrated Family Christian Almanac for the United States. This evangelical publication predicted that eventually the obsolete Jewish religion would succumb to the new Israel of America. The children were reminded through catechism teachings that it was the Jews who crucified the ultimate symbol of goodness, Christ. Hmm. Well, Ford romanticized the past as an ideal time in which nature remained unmolested by the likes of avarice and greed. A curious ideal for an American industrialist. In this, he pursued his naturalist hero, John Burroughs, a soft-spoken sage of the Catskill Mountains in New York State. Burroughs' literature was also informed by a Christian strain that resonated with Ford. To Burroughs, the cities were places from which man needed to escape and rebirth his sensibilities in the pristine forest. It was through Burroughs that Ford learned of the transcendentalists, like Ralph Waldo Emerson and Henry David Thoreau. In fact, 
Ford sought out Emerson's work for spiritual renewal. For years, he was known to carry in his pocket a pamphlet of Emerson excerpts to be called upon for inspirational reference when needed. Ford was enamored with Burroughs and regularly sent him gifts, including a Model T. Mm -hmm. And after Burroughs wrecked the car, running it into a tree, it was replaced with a new one. Ford invited Burroughs on an auto trip to visit the birthplace of American transcendentalism. And this excursion initiated a series of camping expeditions in which Ford hosted Burroughs, Thomas Edison, and Harvey Firestone. This was Camping Ford style, which included a fleet of cars, servants, a portable kitchen, numerous tents equipped with plank wood flooring, and Ford's personal film crew. Always the opportunist, Henry Ford's expeditions were viewed in movie houses all across America. It was a part of my parents' childhood to see Ford, Burroughs, Edison, and Firestone posed as gentlemen campers dressed in their suits and wading with their trousers rolled up in a Catskill trout stream. Such images associated Ford and his ideals with strong American Protestant work ethic values. When Burroughs was fond of Ford and wrote favorably about him, Ford's growing anti-Semitism became a bone of contention between them. Always a chronicler, Burroughs noted in his journal on one camping trip in the summer of 1919 that Ford believed Jews were responsible for the World War, thieving, robbing in general, and the inefficiency of the Navy. He eventually lashed out at railroad magnate Jay Gould and called him a Shylock. Burroughs reports that he corrected Henry Ford on that last count before Burroughs knew Gould to be a Presbyterian. When published, his account of the camping trip left out his notes on the anti-Semitic ravings by Ford, as well as Edison, less strident but nonetheless biased outlook on the Jewish people. And of course, nowhere in the packaged black-and-white movie showings under the heading of millions of dollars worth of brains off on vacation does the viewer get a glimpse of this bias but the public found it in the text of Ford's Dearborn Independent. Within a year, in order to improve his circulation, he focused on a sensational enemy. On May 22, 1920, the Independent initiated the first in a series of 91 successive articles with the heading, The International Jew, The World's Problem. As Ford's Model T moved into an international market, his suspicion about Jewish syndicates followed. In this series of articles, he published The Jew in Character and Business, which examined a fear of Jewish unity that he claimed he could trace back to the Middle Ages. They are described as a people with secret knowledge, bank directors and rabbis who exercise a collective invisible hand over the enterprises of modern society. The article indicates that this is illustrated in a stricken Germany and that America would soon fall prey to this, but for the proud Gentile race to arm itself against these few supermen of a long-despised race. These are all quotes that Ford wrote. By the end of 1920, Ford's Dearborn Publishing Company produced a 250-page bound anthology of articles from the newspaper, it was called The International Jew, The World's Foremost Problem. The introduction notes that the book has claims that this is in response to overwhelming demand for back issues of the paper. 
The first printing ranged from 200,000 to 500,000 copies, and it soon was reprinted in 16 different languages, with six editions in Germany alone. The international Jew did more than any other work to make the prodigals famous. Ford's fanaticism played into the hands of the rising fascist state in Germany. As Reich leader of the Nazi Students' Federation, Baldar Nansharak recalled he was profoundly influenced by reading Der International Jude a full year before he even heard Adolf Hitler inflame his followers. Hitler himself acknowledged Ford's contribution to enlightening the world community of the fearsome Shylock's power. As Hitler wrote, Jews are the regents of the stock exchange power of the American Union. Every year they manage to become increasingly controlling masters of the labor power. And as Hitler wrote, he said, Ford, to their exasperation, still holds out independently in America even now. Man, boom. I'm telling you. Yeah. Guys, I you know These what really I didn't know. It's a little eye opening. Yeah, I, I'd say so. I when you're reading history, you're always thinking, oh, all the anti-Judaism came from Germany, but that's really not at all true. It it's come from, well, it came from Henry Ford. It came from the United States. And it came from a lot of other areas before, and maybe that's why we were so. It took us so long to get into World War II and, and do what was righteous as opposed to being isolationist. Oh, yeah. But what I wonder about as I hear this and I listen to this is why, why would he do this? Isn't he eliminating a large part of his audience I mean, n not that that's the the most important thing, obviously, but you know, what what Jew in his right mind would do business with a man like? We think well, that he I, did plenty of business. I I, I think I think Ford, I think what was going on is Ford was a he's an autocrat. He is a person who needs an enemy, a bad guy, and I and I think yeah. that was part of it. I mean, this gets he gets fanatical. He sold in the nineteen twenties. He sold his Model T. And there's, you know, car has a glove box, you know, glove compartment. You know, that's because uh, original cars were kind of dirty to have. So you had these driver gloves that actually came with the purchase of a car. <laughs> and they were kept in this little compartment on the dashboard that they called a glove box, which is our glove compartment today. Well, he had, uh, with every car he sold, their international Jew was in the glove box. You had a copy of that book. Oh, wow. And if you came back in three months and could pass a little quiz correctly, you could get a free oil change. Are you kidding? Wow. I mean, <sighs> he really had it in for an entire ethnicity, an entire group of people. And he campaigned again. I mean, Hitler liked him. That quote from Hitler, by the way, is from Mein Kampf. Really? Yeah, yeah. And I think that's why when you say he's alienating some of his, uh, you know, maybe people would buy his cars – he felt it very. It was very worth it. Yeah, he had. He, yeah. he as far as the market goes, there he wasn't worried about losing that market. He was building up other markets, and instead of doing it in an, in an honest and reflective way, he was doing it in a divisive way because he needed an enemy. That's what you know. People who hunger for power often require. I, I just see that today a lot. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
these were some of the more successful business people, the Jewish people were mm -hmm. very successful, very focused, very uh, hardworking. Where does he think this is going to go? Does he does he think that somehow he will eliminate them and and all of their success will then just automatically fall to the Christian world or something? It just it, it seems so well. That bizarre. would be the dog catching the car. You, 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 the dog doesn't want to catch the car. It's the process. The, the dog wants to chase, and yeah. and that gives the dog strength and inspires the dog. And in this case, Henry got a lot of strength out of again designating a, a people as a bad people. He didn't really want to do anything about it. You'll find as we go further along these episodes, he mostly wanted to continue throwing fuel into a fire that he could keep burning bright. Yeah, because he yeah. wanted to keep it alive. Yeah, and literally. You know, and and make it and build build it as he did, as you said. They, he sold more and more copies, in more and more languages, of this hate magazine. Or and what's know, amazing article. is I found yeah. accounts of of people who had read his anti-Semitic tracts before they even heard of a man called Adolf Hitler. Hmm. People in Germany, you know, who who yeah. who were inspired by it. So that's he's sort of setting the pace here. Yeah, by feeding into the machine. But that brings something up. I, you know, if you look at Jewish his, history and go back all the way to Ramses, from back at that point, Jews were being made the scapegoat, made the enemy, mm -hmm. yeah. persecuted, and really for no reason at all. So when you look at the Henry Ford and the Hitler, it just made me go back to that history. And it's for the governing power. You know, the, the power. Ramses is doing the same thing that Hitler eventually does. You know, the, the, these various autocrats, they, they can't do this in a, in a democrat. There's nothing democratic about what right. they're doing. They, yeah. they need power. They feed on power. And so they demonize a people. I mean, you know, it's, it's sad, but so many factions in our history have, have done this. Look, look at how we demonize the, the Native Americans. Yes. And, you know, and, and we, we as children, we all saw all those Westerns where the Indians were coming into the, the sweet little pastoral communities and scalping. The, the, right. We're not talking about what had already been done to the Natives. You, oh, we left that part out. Uh, or maybe Europeans. that part doesn't even <laughs> exist. Maybe that was your fake news, you know. And we're yeah. talking because right. we need to eliminate the Indians because we're taking the land at the on which they live. And, right. and again, it's, it's always about that terrible tribal consciousness that is rooted in ferocious hunger. And, uh, and Henry's got it, man. He's, yeah. You'll see how he does this so well. This brings us into critical race theory. Is it important for people to learn this, or is it better to think of him as purely an American icon and a person who did great things by building a, an automobile for, for the common man? Well, I literally wrote something about this yesterday, critical race theory. When I'm trying to talk to people, say, on my Facebook account, I'm trying to tell them a critical race theory and teaching our children about our negative history, about slavery, about Jim Crow laws, is not shaming our children. It's trying to teach them to be better. It's trying to make them better, to build right. a better planet, to even build a better union by teaching them what we did wrong, what happened, what humanity can do that's not good. So that we won't do it again. Right, and we're not shaming the children. Right. And it's a very simplistic way of 
arguing is to say you're just going to shame my child with that. You're well, if you shame li- if you listen to Ron DeSantis, it's exactly right, Tom. It, it, what he's saying right now is. We don't want our children to, to hear about these disturbing stories and to feel badly about themselves. They don't have to feel badly about themselves. They didn't do this. They do have to feel badly about American history, about our behavior in the beginning. And, and then perhaps, hopefully, recognize that we are indeed trying to form a more perfect union. And we do that by telling the truth, conveying the realities of our history, learning from that and hopefully not doing that ever again because what's great about our republic is that we above all else sustain that potential the potential of achieving the greatness of what that union can be what's not so great there's factions that beat it down who fear it who fear the potential of a genuine democratic process and use very simplistic ways of arguing against it which is you're going to be shaming my child, which is absolutely ludicrous. It, it is, it is. You're, you're well, Ford did have his detractors, and they, they were well-spoken, and, out, and they were on you know, both left and right. You know, he did have his de- detractors, obviously. You'll, you'll learn about that next week. That's good. But, um, <laughs> but he knew how to play the public. So while he had his detractors, it's the public that he's feeding into with these films. My dad and my, my mom and uncles, they remember seeing these silent movies right. and uh, these guys sitting around in their suits, gentlemen campers. And, and of course, they're silent movies. You, you're not hearing right. what they're really saying. You're, you're reading the cards as cards that you know give little quotes like an old-fashioned movie does. But you're not hearing. Imagine if you could read lips, you might actually <laughs> be able to read what they're saying. Right. And and thank God for John Burroughs. Yeah. Because you know we they never destroyed those journals, and and we could read about that, and they could confirm a suspicion by having a witness right there at the right time. Yeah. yeah. At the heart of all of this is we're so tribal. Yes. Why are we tribal? Well, tribalism creates division. Division is a method of conquest. So if we can divide and cut this group of people off and cut that group of people off, hopefully our group will be the majority group and we can take power. What seems at the heart of all of this is divide and conquer. Divide and conquer is what's happening today more than ever using social media. This is it. I mean, we've seen it in the last eight years, uh, just absolute Nobody is talking to each other and trying to come to a center. It's funny. We call it social media, but it it allows us to to go down narrow avenues and pursue only that which seems to be our perspective. So we're not getting there's not a you know, there's not a narrative story that we share. We don't share a story. I think I think Obama said something to this effect when he was uh, talking recently. He said, uh, America always could rely on the fact that it had a shared story. didn't always work out well, but we could always engage it yeah. and then in, in that respect actively share it. And we're losing that. And unfortunately, uh, non-human algorithms and artificial <laughs> intelligence right, right. guide us and divide us so that when I'm thinking my way, uh, it's going to lead me down that path. And when someone else is thinking their way it'll lead them down that path and never the twain shall meet never the twain shall meet you've got the internet of one 
okay with these with yes. these algorithms my internet is my internet it has it doesn't look at all like yours your right. internet doesn't look at all like dr chucks they call it social media it's not really very social no, at all. Uh, no no anyway listen this is a great start a great continuation i should say another episode. Fordism, another episode another episode Thank you all for joining us. As you can see, the conversation is getting a little bit more active and interesting right now because we're getting closer to the heart of the matter, the real conflict. So we'll see you next week, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us. Bye-bye. Now for a word from our favorite sponsor, the Montgomery Book Exchange. It's your hometown used bookstore located at 61A Clinton Street in the heart of the Montgomery, New York Business District. Folks, you're going to love the book exchange. This is a place where great books survive the test of time, where you can enjoy a book read by readers a generation before you. You might even find notes in the margins giving you an insight as to what mattered most to that previous reader. That's how the Montgomery Book Exchange turns a great book into a shared experience. And the Montgomery Book Exchange is known throughout the Hudson Valley and beyond for innovations like their 20 for $20 book stacks or their intimate author readings and signing experiences. How about their member-driven book club selections and book club talks, their monthly Zoom and in-person book auctions, and Handmade Montgomery. This is a wonderful event featuring local artisans and hundreds of beautiful handmade crafts and keepsakes. And how about getting store credits in the form of book bucks? Bring your well-loved or gently used books in for a store credit. Now, it's closed on Mondays, but it's open Tuesdays through Saturdays from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. and on Sunday from 12 noon to 4 p.m. Want more information? Just go to MontgomeryBookExchange.com or call them at 845 764 1787. That's 845-764-1787. Now, there's one more thing. They even have a special location at 8 Factory Street dedicated to your young readers. They call it the Children's Chapter, and it features a reading garden where your children can discover the joy of reading in a wonderful and stimulating learning environment. Now, my kids are all 30-something now, but I have four beautiful grandchildren, Jimmy, Sienna, Stella, and JJ, and I'm bringing all four of them down to the Children's Chapter. Also at this location, you'll find Miss Claire's Music Cupboard, featuring the award-winning research-based kinder music program. The children's chapter is open Wednesdays through Saturdays. Check the website for specific class times that match your child's age. You can contact the children's chapter at 845-522-9652. MontgomeryBookExchange.com, your hometown used bookstore. You're going to love this place.